You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 185, and I'm your host, Tom Gallup. This edition of the podcast features an interview with multidisciplinary artist John Bernson. The San Francisco-based songwriter has a long and fascinating history of writing eclectic, narrative-driven songs that incorporate several other means of expression, including sound design, dance, and tableau vivant, just to name a few. Birdson began experimenting beyond the traditional confines of songwriting in the late 1990s as the frontman of Ray's Vast Basement, developing a multimedia approach that is frequently referred to as musical fiction. He's continued his expansive and interdisciplinary approach through other musical projects, including X-Rays and Window Twins. He's also written plays and is a founding member of the Howells Transmitter Arts Collaborative and Record Label. Most recently, Bernson shared an album called Higher Lows, which was heavily inspired by Leonard Cohen's 1984 album Various Positions. Like Cohen, Bernson recorded the album using a variety of Casio synthesizers that he accumulated over the years from thrift stores and juxtaposed darker lyrics with brighter sounding sonics. During our interview, we dove into Bernson's past, including how he started his first project, Ray's Vast Basement, while living in a storage shed on the edge of the Point Reyes National Forest how he's transitioned between the various projects that he's worked on over the years, what it was like recording higher lows while an artist in residency at the space program in San Francisco, and much more. Plus, Bernson picked some awesome records from my collection, including choice cuts from Purple Mountains, Public Image Limited, and The Cars. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look at My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look at My Records website where you can find reviews, premieres of new music, playlists, and a whole lot more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. Welcome to Look at My Records. Really stoked to have John Bernson here. His new album, Higher Lows, is out now on Howell's Transmitter. John, so great to chat with you. How are you? Doing great. Great to be here. Yeah, I've been listening to Higher Lows a bunch. Really, really like it. Really appreciate your unique approach to making the record, too, and the sound you were able to get out of the album. But before we get into that specifically, you have this really extensive, interesting background doing a lot of different things within the music world. So I definitely want to talk about it a little bit. Take me back to like the late 90s. Your main project was Ray's Vast Basement. And already back then, you kind of started to utilize this 
approach to making music that's much more than just songwriting and performing songs. Even back then, you kind of started to incorporate video, dance, sound design, storytelling into your performances. Did you, did that project originally start as something that was that ambitious or was it more along the lines of, you know, I'm a songwriter, I'm writing songs, and then you started to explore all these other ways to, I guess, convey your message through music? Yeah, that's a good question. I I would say that it evolved pretty organically in the sense that I didn't really have a master plan when I began working on Ray's Vast Basement. I just have always been drawn to trying to express myself and communicate in a variety of ways. And I, and I like exploring how, what, what happens when they overlap, I guess. Um, and Ray's Vast Basement, I started working on when I arrived in California because I'm from New York originally. Yeah. So a lot of it was just inspired by my curiosity and fascination with Northern California coasts. And so I started just doing research. And when I'd find cool photos, I'd photocopy them. And if I found an archive, I would, you know, just write down a bunch of quotes and um, started to weave this combination of historical truth and historical fiction. And it turned into its early iterations, which were a live performance that included songs and interactive theater. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I just got my friends together. I got like 20 people to play these characters in this fictional speakeasy called Ray's Vast Basement. And we put on a show in the middle of it. And it didn't seem that weird to me. It just seemed like, yeah, this is the best way to tell the story and, and have fun. and you know what were people's initial reactions to things like that what were you like billing something like that as you know i think of going to a gig here in brooklyn you know i go to a four band bill and people are playing their songs you know but you know there's stuff you can always go to on the you know low, uh, lower east side or in the east village experimental theater and stuff like that what were people re people's reactions to things like that? And what were you kind of, how were you approaching it? How were you kind of telling people this is what I'm doing? Yeah. Well, I was a really young artist, you know, so I didn't know better. And I just started presenting everything as what would now be thought of as a work in progress. You know, I would, yeah. I would go to an open mic because open mics were really a thing then and I'd have like a couple scrappy songs and a piece of paper with some things that I'd written and maybe I'd invite someone to come with me for one of them and we'd riff on one of the stories that we had talked about and it just sort of I didn't really think about it. Yeah, that's <laughs> the way cool. The, the way that people reacted was usually um, it was it was quite varied. Some people kind of got it, I would say, sort of early on that this is just a form, another form of storytelling that's just a little bit more, uh, just the walls have come down a little bit and, you know, it's just 
stepping outside just uh, the realm of straight up singer songwriter um, and other people would say hey I, the songs were alright but I really like the story <laughs> you know I mean it, it really ranged some people was the opposite you know why are you, why are you telling these stories just sing, sing me some songs and sell me a tape I'm good you know <laughs> <laughs> totally. But so, so you're definitely a multidisciplinary artist. You experiment in a lot of different art forms. What came first for you as a young person? What were you exposed to initially? And what mm -hmm. did you pursue initially? Or was there a lot of overlap even at a young age for you? Well, I'd say that, you know, my earliest... The earliest musical experiences I can think of were, there's really two main things. One was, um, I was in school plays, like musicals, when yeah. I was six, you know? So just being like hoisted up onto stage with things that I had memorized and had to sing along with the music teacher playing a piano and sets that I didn't understand how they, they got there. They just, some parents had volunteered their time and you know, I didn't understand the mechanics of how all that stuff happened and how amazing and what a difficult lift it is to put on something like a musical. Yeah. So it just felt like something that happens, you know, um, from some of my earliest memories. And then I also uh, would say that my parents, I never saw them play a musical instrument, but apparently my mother played piano when she was young and my father liked to sing folk songs nice. so he would get out you know like the great american songbook and we just sing songs totally out of tune you know it was kind of interesting because there was no like musical rigor to it at all it was just for fun and for the melody we might get the melody completely wrong we might make it up it was just kind of freeform improv focusing. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was probably my, my foundation. And I took to writing pretty young, I'd say, also. Like writing fiction, stor stories, stuff yeah, like that? Poems yeah, and stories, poems and stories, things like that. I think writing's cool, too, because there's really no... If you're writing for, for theater or writing songs, there's all these other considerations like, you know, how is that plug into the, the song structure? How are you going to record that? How am I going to perform that? How, who's going to act in those roles? But when you're writing, it's just your imagination just can go wherever it wants to. So in some ways, I think that was also a good, a good beginning place for um, creating. Yeah, did you tie tie that together with music early on too when you were a teenager or anything like that as far as poetry and writing songs yeah there were some early attempts i would say that um in high school i mostly played in like cover bands i yeah. wasn't really creating and it wasn't until my senior year that this friend of mine said we should write some songs. We should we should make our own music, and we just we, we same thing. We just started doing it. Um, 
didn't really talk about what kind of music we wanted to make. We just started playing. And I, I, don't, I think there's a tape of that somewhere. But uh, I didn't really start writing songs until later on to like college and when I got out of college that's when I started to realize that songwriting was the most in some ways the most basic form of being interdisciplinary I mean that there's so many things included in writing a song you know the music the performance the recording the lyrics the idea of putting songs together to tell a greater story by including a group of songs together. To me, that's just so many different skills and ideas all bound up together right there. So, so very early on in your life as a songwriter, it seems like you really recognize the importance of the performance aspect of songwriting. Would you say that's, that's true? Not necessarily the type of person that was just writing alone in their room and kind of keeping it to themselves. Yeah, I don't know if I realized how important it was, but I realized that it was it was part of what attracted me yeah. to it, you know? And I loved, I got so much inspiration from going to shows and seeing other people perform, mostly friends. So, um, yeah. Yeah. What, what drew you to the, the West Coast from New York? I'm always interested in hearing an answer to this question for people that are especially from New York because there's, you know, great music history in New York too and definitely opportunities for musicians and to do things creative here. But of course, San Francisco also, where where you're based and you've been based for a while, also has a thriving creative community. What What brought you out there? Yeah, so... That, that is one that I get a lot because New York is, it's really the center of the world in many ways and center of music, art, theater world. So why would you leave that if that's what you want to do? But um, after I graduated college, myself and five of my friends just wanted to drive across country. Nice. Yeah, just enjoy it. You know, not drive as fast as we could to get to the other side, but just... <laughs> not have a plan and just kind of wander across the country. But I did apply for one job before I left. Like, oh, I might as well apply for a job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going all the way out there and I got to get back or I got to do something when I get there. So I actually applied for Teach for America um, and did a little like job interview, which is a bit like a performance, honestly. And I did this, you have to do a sample lesson. So I did how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Um, <laughs> That's a valuable skill though. That is. Life skills, man. Life Very skills. good life skill. That's a timeless sandwich that can feed many hungry people. Exactly. So I got the gig. And so I, when I got to the West Coast, I had a job in Oakland waiting for me so uh, yeah just and after I was here for a few years I felt this is where I belonged yeah um, yeah cool 
And I do feel it suits my personality to be out here. It suits my temperament. I love New York. Um, but I'm just a little bit, I'm intense about what I do, but I, I, um, it was a little bit too like fast paced for me, uh, to feel like I could create a sustainable practice for myself. And how'd you get uh, immersed in the music and art scene in San Francisco? What were some of your early experiences there? <laughs> Trial and terror. <laughs> Trial um, by fire, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I didn't have a network when I came out here. I didn't, I really didn't. I only knew a few people and I just kind of inched my way towards, yeah. towards doing it. I, the first year or two was, was pretty rough. Um, I felt on the outside of everything. And I also felt that I wasn't that, I wasn't really good enough to, really have a lot to contribute or to express to the conversation that was being had in the, the arts community. So that's kind of what led me to move up to uh, Point Reyes, which is about a couple hours north of here. And just kind of worked on my, oh, worked wow. on myself and worked on, and that's where Ray's Vast Basement came out of, was from living up there. I lived in a 12 by 12 storage shed um, at the wow. edge of the uh, Point Reyes National Forest and just it's like I'm going to go out this like 10 hours a day and just get better just become decent wow you know that's really intense what do you remember about those experiences it seems like it sounds like it could be very isolating but also very fruitful creatively yeah it was it was both of those things I mean isolation by design um to eliminate distractions and just be able to focus on. I knew I needed to put a lot of time in, so I I did want to be isolated, but although I do enjoy solitude a lot, I also enjoy people a lot. And ideally I'm sort of, I have a nice balance, but I did end up meeting some great people there. And I'm sure there still is, but at the time there was a, a small but pretty cool um, music and artistic community living up there of all different age groups. So um, I actually got a lot of, after the first year, I got a lot of inspiration from the other artists there as well. Do you remember what specifically? Well, you know, um, Ramblin' Jack Elliott lives up there, so oh, wow. I was able to wow. see Ramblin' Jack play at like barbecues and stuff. Um, <laughs> and uh, another songwriter who's still a friend of mine, his name is uh, Jesse Dinatali. Um, I met him there, and he's he just put out a record this year. And um, I think at the time, also uh, Tom Waits was living uh, just like 45 minutes north of there and i was quite into his yeah uh, quite inspired by that, his yeah. work so you know i didn't feel like i was completely out of yeah you know community orbit of of the arts so if that makes sense totally and so then then did you work your way back down to san francisco was that kind of like a natural end where you had finished 
a project and decided, okay, now I kind of want to come back or was there another reason? It started to, um, it started to become evident that it was time to move back. And, um, I think the, the, uh, the deal that really sealed the deal was I met my wife yes. who, uh, <laughs> was living in the city. She wasn't my wife when I met her, but <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my fiance wasn't either. That's the way it goes. Yeah. And so, um, it all just kind of came together. Yeah, cool. Because it was perfect timing. I really needed to be back in the city, and she was here. So how did Ray's Vast Basement transition to your next project, X-Rays? What were some of the differences between that? how that happened? Um, did it represent a big change in what you were doing uh, with the project? And that's why you thought a change would change in name was necessary yeah um i i felt that um after i released two records that were pretty tightly uh, related to this concept of ray's vast basement being this uh subterranean cave where all these historical events took place and all these songs revolved around them and then the well kind of ran dry on that in the sense of like okay the story has been told this is this isn't you know <laughs> this is good you know <laughs> um but then i released one more record which was uh, uh a record of songs that were all based on steinbeck uh yeah stories but it didn't you know after releasing it i felt like maybe it didn't belong under that name because it, it was just by inertia that it ended up working out that way if that makes yeah. sense like that was the band and that that was what was happening and i was also really starting to get into like a different sound palette starting to experiment more with synthesizers and starting to get yeah. really into science fiction and and then i'd say the third factor was after rotating through several incarnations of the band which were pretty tightly knit um, it started to feel like that ensemble of players was not working anymore. It wasn't the right combination and it certainly wasn't the right combination for where I wanted to go, uh, musically, stylistically. So I just kind of made the transition. I had started recording a record. It sounded so different and I had just been thinking like this, this can't be a race fast basement record. It's got to be an X-rays vast basement record. Yeah. So. <laughs> as far as your interest in Ray's vast basement, which based a lot of lyrically in the stories like historical fiction to then science fiction, how do you trace that uh, shift in as far as what you were interested in exploring, like story, narrative, and narrative-wise and lyrically? Yeah. Well, it, it happened very slowly, you know, um, kind of gradually. It just happened before I realized it was happening, I would say. I, I was living in the Mission in San Francisco, so my world, I was right on 24th Street, um, which is 
complete opposite of living in a storage shed and and yeah totally <laughs> but it was loud i had a mic in the mail slot i was recording people have like doing drug deals like outside my outside my front door it, it was pretty 180 degrees unless i was living yeah. on a space station i couldn't gotten further away from living in the in forest so i just started becoming an urban person you know yeah. uh like deeply urban person and just wanted to sort of embrace that so i wrote a few records that were sort of more autobiographical and based in the neighborhood and yeah. based on my experiences and then i started getting into um, another concept idea which was the driving force behind the last two x-rays records which are um, 12 and logbook which are a whole different story which are more based in science fiction. How I got into it, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I'd always been into science fiction. It's just that when you're living in the woods, you're just surrounded by such more, so many more powerful influences that, yeah. you know, I'm definitely a product of my environment. So I pull from what's right around me usually. And I had met a group of people who were also really into sci-fi so there was a lot of back and forth and trading of like more and more obscure films and you know books and things like that and it's like I, I need to I need to get in on this and like <laughs> <laughs> yeah tell a story that <clears throat> explores this territory you know so super cool very very awesome I did want to ask you about some of the plays you've written too. You've written sure. several plays like When Lightning, The Voids, and Distant Future Symposium. Um, how'd you venture out into the playwriting art form and do you find yourself getting something out of it that you don't get out of music? Yeah. Um, well, that's a deep well. Um, <laughs> I would say that, um, well, to kind of segue from the previous question, Distant Future Symposium is based, it's connected to that x-rays, uh, those two x-rays records that I mentioned. The second one being Logbook, which is a series of logbook entries from a, um, a spacecraft known as Vessel 12, which has been purportedly sending transmissions back to Earth over the past 23 years and logbook is sort of a recreation of those transmissions and distant future symposium is a play um whereby like six different experts in different mediums all argue about the authenticity of those <laughs> nice. of those transmissions whether they're actually sent from a spacecraft whether they were created by signal intrusion aka hacker yeah. uh parties and and so it's just kind of set up like a like a symposium it's like six people sitting at a table arguing with a live band and um video and photocopies <laughs> being that's projected awesome. up on the that's screen that's amazing <laughs> yeah it's pretty fun i really enjoyed that and then when lighting the voids is um 
That is an audio play, and I collaborated with uh, Jenna Welch, my wife, on that one. Um, she runs uh, a theater company that I am a member of. It's called StoryWorks Theater, and it's a documentary theater company. So it's um, dedicated to creating work that is rooted in truth and like verified facts uh, with very rigorous reporting um, and documentation. So uh, I, I ended up writing that play because um, she had been working with a reporter who was reporting on this uh, explosion in, in Mississippi that had happened on a shipyard. And I guess uh, a la Ray's Vast Basement and my whole like nautical theme, I did learn a lot about boats and ships and she, she awesome. knows that I'm fascinated in it. So that ended up leading to a play and then an audio play that we recorded down in New Orleans um, with regional actors down there. Totally. But with so something that, see, I didn't realize that a Distant Future Symposium and the album logbook were connected like that so it's another thing that kind of builds off something that i think i mentioned at the top was that you know you incorporate so many mediums into one piece of work at one time how do you how did you say for instance distant future symposium which is a play and the x-rays album logbook that's an album what prompted you to think oh i finished this album logbook i think this play would now be an interesting follow-up or connected piece to the album instead of maybe oh well this could be the next like a, a sequel record you know another record or something like that how do you kind of compartmentalize okay, this is actually good for this, a play, or this is good for a, uh, you know, sound design piece or something like that. Totally. It's a great question. I would love to be able to answer it, but... Just happens, you know, right? They, they, you know what a Gantt chart is? You know, it's like those lines that <laughs> yeah, like yeah. overlap kind of. <clears throat> when it's all done, they seem separate, you know, but when I'm working on them, it's, it's all just one amorphous... Yeah blob of story and at the time I had the opportunity to work as artist in residence at the de Young Museum and I was working on the x-rays album um, I was collaborating with my bandmate uh, Michael Falsetto Map and we were working on the Vessel 12 project and all these things were happening at the same time and so one of the aspects of the residency was that every Friday, it was a month long or five weeks, every Friday it was open to the public. So the residency space where the Vessel 12 installation was, was open. And I was like, oh, well, this is something where people will just walk in and they might walk in in the middle. They might walk in at the beginning and leave. They might just come for the last five minutes how could they get a little entry point into the story? And I figured if you walk into a symposium and people are talking, 
that could be really cool. So what I didn't realize is that everyone would come for the beginning and leave at the end for the most part. <laughs> so it kind of worked out in the sense that um, people who came to that could hear the music, they could see the band who was on the stage behind yep. the, you know, behind the symposium, see the maps on the wall, um, and then hear these actors portraying scientists debating about these different theories of Vessel 12. So in that space, there were no, the lines that separated them were very minimal. And it's just afterward when those songs get recorded or that script gets completed or that in, those installation photos get posted that they appear separate, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Really fascinating. So we've talked for like half an hour <laughs> on your background. <laughs> and honestly, we could probably talk for way longer. But I do want to talk about the record since it just dropped and this is the primary thing happening right yeah. now. Higher Lows, awesome new album. You've described it as a new beginning for you, which I thought was interesting because you've seemed to have explored a lot musically and artistically over the last two decades. How would you say this has been a new beginning for you, this record? Well, I would say that uh, in a few ways. One, um, it's a new band name, so, you know, Higher Lows has got a new musical guiding principle, which is basically devotion to the Casio keyboard. Yeah. I'm not being sponsored by them, but if you know anyone... <laughs> send, send John some free shit right yeah. now. I'll rep we need, you. <laughs> yeah, we need that. We need that. I want that to happen. I love when that happens. Yeah. I'll rep your keyboards, but they can't be from the last 20 years. <laughs> no, I've heard the new, new Casios are pretty cool, actually. Nice. They're using some, they're using all the new interfaces with your phone and stuff, but I've got all the, you know, I've got old ones and ones with missing keys and stuff. And so, um, it's, it's also largely not, a, um, that's the concept. There's really, that's the musical concept is that, Everything was made with a Casio using pre, pre-generated beats. Um, kind of like the idea of ready-mades in the art world, of like taking something that already exists and recontextualizing it. Uh, that's how I see working with Casio, you know, auto-generated rhythms and auto chords. Um, and Although uh, Jason Kick, who's the third member of X-Rays, um, did a lot of work on this record, um, you know, in, in many respects, uh, it's a, a solo record. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say not not in um, not to diminish Jason's contributions, but just more in the ethos of ethos of it. It's not like we created this in the studio you know track by track it's not like we were jamming or anything came up with arrangements they're all built up track by track so um it just kind of has that you know studio album feel to me of, yeah. of solo studio album feel 
Um, it's all very autobiographical as opposed to being yeah. like a concept record, you know? It's just stories about my life, so. Um, but he did great work on the record. He played some amazing parts, did a lot of great singing. I hope I'm being clear about why I'm calling it a solo record. Totally. Yeah. And so you alluded to the sonic, I guess, foundation of the record uh, are these Casio keyboards, these old Casio keyboards, primarily from the 1980s and their unique pre-programmed sounds. Right. And what made you want to explore that? How'd you go about getting all of these older Casio keyboards? Good question. Um, well, I've, I've had I've had them for a long time and I've enjoyed working with Casios for a long time yeah. and I've just slowly collected them and I have a studio in Oakland that people tend to leave things at, which is how I get most of my instruments. <laughs> people leave them there by mistake and then just never come back to get them or they say, hey, could you hold on to this for me while I move? And so I've got I've got a bunch of them. I've always liked them. I've always used them on, on records. But I really, as I thought about um, what I wanted to do with this record, I thought a lot about uh, the Leonard Cohen, various positions era. Yeah. And although he didn't use exclusively Casios on those records, he used like additional instrumentation for his arrangements. Um, I read this great quote where it said that it really unlocked something for him that allowed the music to, the simplicity of that approach to making music to allow his lyrics to really um, come into the foreground. And also I think what it accomplishes for him that I was hoping it would accomplish for me, which is to provide this kind of lighthearted sound to some lyrical ideas yeah. that were perhaps darker or totally without sounding pretentious either yeah. you know i do like to explore ideas and want to explore my own life but i don't want to navel gaze and i don't want to come across as like my life is something you need to care about <laughs> necessarily <laughs> or else you're going to be a loser <laughs> you know so I, I feel like it's kind of a sweet and sour sauce recipe yeah you know, and the Casio is the sweet and the lyrics are the sour. The sour, yeah, totally. When you get it right, it tastes pretty good. <laughs> you also produce this record while you're an artist in residence at the Space Program in San Francisco. How'd that residency come about and what made making a record in that setting unique, say, maybe compared to some of your previous projects that you've worked on over the years? Yeah. Well, the space program is relatively new. It's been around for two or three years, I think. And um, two years, I, th I think. Although, you know, it's been being built for a while. But I do know um, a couple of the people who were involved in the formation of it and was invited to the kind of soft launch. And nice, yeah. The, the artists in the room who were invited, they said, look, we're still 
kind of working out what we're going to do here and how we're going to do it. We'd love it if you pitched projects to us and, and we could start a conversation about, you know, how to structure a residency around it. And so that's what I did. And even though I have a studio, um, it's good. It's nothing fancy. You know, I'm very thankful that I have it. Um, but it's, you know, after you've been making records for a while, it's great to work somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and the reason I put a lot of my energy and resources into my own studios, cause I don't want to pay, um, yeah. really large sums of money to use someone else's. So this was kind of an opportunity to do both change my environment, use a really work in a really high quality studio and, um, help them kind of like contribute something to what they're trying to do, which is, um, get off the ground and like figure out where they want it to go, which they've definitely done. So that's, that's really cool. And, um, how does it change things? Yeah. It just changed your, changed my perspective. Yeah. Is it know? like liberating in a sense, even if it's not necessarily, you know, the tools that you have at your disposal, but just mentally to, create something in a setting that you're not used to being in completely my studio you know i know i have my go-to things my ways of doing things and it can become a rut if you're not careful if i'm not careful so it was great because i got to do both you know i got some studio time then i got to take the tracks back and then when i was done i got to return and like preview my mixes and the, uh, the masters in the studio and so it was sort of this um intermittent residency where i got to come and go i think three different times at different phases of the project and including the screen printing of the covers so it, it was um i think it was just perfect a perfect amount of changing it up without throwing me into uh some kind of like i don't know uh structured environment where i had to finish it all at the studio in a week or something that probably wouldn't have worked for this record so yeah cool yeah Yeah. you mentioned doing the art there too the album art and it was the first album art that you designed yourself and it's cool because it's like basically this all-encompassing experience creative experience then for you because you also did the album art there what was that like? Um, that was great. I, I, you know, there's something cool about beginner's mind, you know, about yeah. just doing something for the first time. Uh, I really went about it in a way. I'm kind of been using Photoshop for two or three years, and I just gathered different like shapes and textures and collected them into a digital collage. And I didn't realize. I worked with a screen printer. It's, it's not like I was pulling the squeegee yeah. each time. Um, who's amazing. Um, his name's Brian Von Bargen. And he, he, I kept saying, I don't know if this is going to be printable. You know, this is just what I came up with. He said, don't worry about it. We'll figure out a way to print it. I was like, I don't know, man. This seems pretty crazy. It's a lot of colors here. He's like, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. And then. You know, as we started, my original idea was to have 12 different covers that formed this, like, 
uh, horizontal panorama, you know? Yeah. And they're like, maybe you should scale that back. <laughs> scale that down a little bit. <laughs> That'd be like 120 screens, you know? <laughs> so, but it ended up being 11 screens, which, you know, if you know anything about screen printing, which I didn't really until, I didn't know very much until this, this year, but that's a lot. And when colors are right up next to each other, it makes for a very difficult job to screen print. And that is all of what this cover is. It's a bunch of different colors with straight lines. That <laughs> yeah, it's a cool cover. I dig it though, for sure. <laughs> thanks. Thanks to the, the, the long and short of it is, thanks to Brian, this idea was able to come to life. And thanks to the, from the support of uh, the space program. Yeah, what was the inspiration behind the cover for you? Do you see it as like representing the songs at all? It's it's these different colors. It's like a sun in the middle rising mm -hmm. or setting. Yeah, so I do. There's two ideas going on there. One is like I do see this like half sun, higher lows uh, visual idea at yeah. play with some abstracted buildings and also I kind of wanted to think of like what would the visual equivalent of a Casio keyboard be if it was on a record cover. So I tried to use, they're not primary colors per se, but I kind of looked at the colors of those buttons yeah. and tried to tap into that color palette a little bit. Nice. Yeah. Some of the, the tracks on the record make believe the opening track it's definitely very autobiographical you describe your musical journey a bit getting into how you didn't necessarily follow a traditional creative path musically i feel like you also kind of explore some of your uh musical experiences on that same on the same mistake another track on the record you yep. reflect on touring uh, when you were writing this record, uh, were you reflecting on your your life a lot in music and art when making this record? What prompted you to kind of reflect on some of these experiences in your life? That's a good question. I think a couple things. I mean, for me, an unforeseen uh outcome from working with uh casio keyboards is they conjured up a lot of memories, memories from being yeah. a kid you know yeah. and it's something that keeps happening to me and i think i finally realized that this is a pattern of mine <laughs> that i i usually have like a signature device that i use in combination like a signature vintage device that i use in combination with whatever tools i'm using now and I think that it kind of connects me to my past a little bit. Um, it grounds me emotionally because one of my tools is old, you know, or like connects me to older version of myself and, or a younger version of myself. Um, and I also think after working on concept records for a while where you're not, um, where I'm not writing in the first person. Yeah there starts to become a backlog of ideas and thoughts for me. And I've started to realize that whether or not anyone wants to hear it, I should tell my own story yeah, totally. because no one else will do that or no one else should need to do that. You know, that's my job. So I'll tell my story and 
maybe not, that's not that's not all I will do, but I've got to make time, and I'm inspired at various points to do that. So that's where I think the lyric, lyrical content came from, for the most part. Yeah, I really liked Make Believe in particular, the the first track, because I think it really got into some of like adversity you you faced by maybe not approaching things in a traditional manner but you still continued to persevere uh what what made you uh tell us a little bit about that song in particular i guess and what 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 the message is i feel the message is kind of like you make believe you were able to create great art by forging your own path and doing things your own way even though maybe some people said you couldn't um yeah i think you did a great job of explaining the song (laughs) (laughs) i guess um again i think like that is a lot of what the musical con i mean the lyrical content of the song is about and but i think what's what's hard about a song like that for me is that you know i think every artist faces adversity and yeah artists who are trained in this way or that way or not trained everyone's going to experience adversity unless you're just one in a trillion and you have you know five great years where you're not experiencing any adversity so this is just my adversity and i think that i felt comfortable talking about it because the backdrop was like this toy like um drum beat with like these sampled you know oohs and ahs and stuff and to me it kind of in addition to the messages that you mentioned i would say that it's important to laugh and sort of you know not take try not to let that adversity like get the upper hand yeah totally um that's like a main lesson for me and one that I wanted to share because yeah, it's a good takeaway. It never ends. It never ends. And yeah. you know, uh, it's good to laugh at it and say, and, and, and likewise with the same mistake, that's just about one touring debacle after another, which, <laughs> you know, if you're not prepared for that, don't hit the road, man. <laughs> totally. That's funny. What about uh, like what you were saying? So much, so many of the the lyrics are kind of stand in contrast to the up tempo nature of the music. I'm thinking of Fahrenheit 450 in particular. Tell us about that track and what inspired the title because it's one number off from the title of the book. So I was curious about what you were going for with that in particular. Yeah, you know, written during the Trump era, I just felt that there were so many points where we were one degree away from igniting. Yeah, and you know, interesting. Yeah, four fifty one being the, I think the temperature the paper ignites at, if I'm not mistaken, and of course Ray Bradbury's uh, story. I just felt that. That's, that's, uh, emotionally where at least the left 
side of the country um, was at and you know by extension of that where I felt I was at for yeah. you know four and a half years or however long it's been and you know it's nice it's nice that that we got Biden in the White House but um, it just made me feel like this this slow like dismantling every time like something gets pulled out from from the foundation that's that's like preserving our democracy the temperature goes up just yeah. one more degree and it just felt like the slightest you know lighting of a match could put us over the edge you know so that's where that came from do you have a personal favorite track on the record or one that you think really represents what you were going for overall with the album? I wouldn't say that I have a favorite. Uh, depends on the day. Uh, lately, I have been I've been enjoying People of the Sun because it is a little bit more open-ended. And so I'll find that, you know, there are still things for me to discover in that song because it yeah. was sort of written more from like my subconscious than some of the other songs if that makes sense so there's more there for me to find i suppose right now what do you find yourself finding in that song <laughs> now well you know the the cor the words for the chorus i don't know how it is for other songwriters but sometimes there's these words that come to you and that come to me and uh you're like not sure what they mean originally. Yeah, I'm like, well, that's not going to be in the real song. That's just what I'm singing right now while I'm working on the song because that's really stupid. Uh, <laughs> it's a good chorus, though. People take a stand. People turn and run. People love the people of the sun. It yeah. flows really well. Thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, people of the people of the sun was was the part that was sticking in my head, and. I kept trying to come up with things that maybe meant a little bit more and or something or like more in line with the concept of the record of like thinking back on my, you know, my life or telling my story. And what it became is just, you know, maybe people, the people, the sun is just people. And maybe I'm just going to riff on what I think about people. <laughs> awesome. I love that. I'm into it. It's a great record for sure. That's a good song too. People of the Sun is the second song on the album. Side A. Track two. People of the Sun. So now that this record is out, you seem to be the type of dude that has multiple projects going on at one time. What's What else is up with you right now? What else are you working on? I do have um, do have some new tracks started in the same vein for higher lows. Taking my time though, and I've also been working on a, a film called Third Eye Moonwalk, which has been in development as a script for about four years. So that's gonna go on the the burner next, I would say. I mean, it's been on the burner. I've been been working on it 
meeting with folks, working with a director and um, dramaturg and a couple of producers for at least a year now. So it's just, you know, slow going. Got a couple grants, still got some nice. money to get. Got got some money to find though to finish to to get the full production cost together. But I'm excited about it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm also very excited about that as well. And I'm super excited to share some tracks from Higher Lows with everyone right now. We're gonna play two tracks from the record. You can get higher lows at higherlows.bandcamp.com we're going to hear the first two tracks since we talked about them make believe and people of the sun
everyone we're back i'm here with john bernson we heard two awesome tracks from his new record 
higher lows we heard make believe and people of the sun everyone you can get the record at higherlows.bandcamp.com all right john picked some records we're gonna talk about them play them as well you picked backwater by brian eno off of before and after science tell us a little bit about why you picked this record well i picked that record because brian eno is a personal inspiration to me and someone who you know uh his sort of uh denial of artistic boundaries has inspired me to do the same with more purpose (laughs) so and but at the same time i feel like this song it's pretty straight ahead you know and and so um yeah i also don't necessarily always buy this separation between like experimental and you know pop or what have you i think that that everything's an experiment um so you know brian eno's done all kinds of different stuff but this is this is a pop song and i didn't realize this about the track but i read a little background on it and apparently at when it was released it was sort of seen as like this crossover track that appealed to like this division that was happening in england at the time between like the punks and the art rock scene and it kind of apparently was like this song that showed people like hey here's a little bit of both Both, all at the same time you know so i thought that was pretty cool and maybe a good track conceptually to share you know yeah brian eno bringing people together Since You're Gone by The Cars off of Shake It Up. <laughs> Love this song. Yeah. So I had never seen the video and I went and checked out the video for the song because I was trying to decide which Cars song yeah. to, to play. And it's really funny. It's like all these really uh, lo-fi edits of like you know, like Rico Kasich would be like watching an empty vacuum cleaner, like go across the rug because it's about since since you're gone. And, you know, but it was all done with like very low tech tools. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of, you know, the cars have very refined sound. There's no there's there's nothing rough, rough around the edges about the cars, you know, and they just make really good pop songs that are super well constructed and you know with this record i wasn't i wasn't trying to do anything fancy i just wanted to have good songs that were straight ahead with like good choices and instruments and and arrangements and put the lyrics out front just kind of like a car song yeah the lyrics are definitely out front (laughs) love it I 
Next Snow by Purple Mountains off of Purple Mountains. Your your singing voice definitely reminds me of David Berman a little bit, your vocal delivery. So I thought that was cool. And did you know David Berman at all uh, playing music? No. Um, you know, back in the day, before I had heard the Silver Jews, people were like, oh, you listen to Silver Jews, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, uh, sure, I do. Um, and of course, I ended up really liking the Silver Jews. And um, yeah, you know, if you're going to write songs, there's certain songwriters. If you're going to write lyrics, I think there's certain songwriters, you know, you got to put some time into. And David Berman is just kind of the poet of our of my generation so I, I think and i also see him as sort of the inheritor of the leonard cohen mantle um so and i love that song it's just such a beautiful song his songs are not always beautiful like in a in a tender kind of way um they're more beautiful because of the imagery that he evokes with his lyrics but yeah that's just a damn beautiful song and um that feeling of like snow falling in manhattan is just uh such a beautiful serene feeling and also i feel like a foreshadowing of his of his death in a way snow is falling in manhattan Diagonal fashion on the Sabbath as it happens. All right, next. Public image limit limited. Rise off off of <laughs> rise off of album. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of going back to the Cars thing. It's just, there's just nothing fancy about the song. It's just a great tune. Um, and it's just kind of got this real 80s vibe. And I've always liked it. So just something I keep going back to. It's like, that's a, that's a hard kind of a song to write. You know, I don't know. I don't know how they did it, honestly. But good question. you alluded to I mean an album you alluded to influencing this record a lot um, and you cho you chose the song The Law off of various positions by Leonard Cohen how this record how'd you discover this record and how did it influence this album uh, I hadn't thought about this in a long time but I have this very vivid memory of driving up highway one when i was living in point reyes which is the coastal highway you know here uh, bordering the pacific ocean 
And I think I just played one of my first gigs many years ago with my friend Jesse Dinatali, who I mentioned earlier. And he said, I think you would like this, this record, you know, and put on this Leonard Cohen record in his car as we were driving north on Route 1. And I was like, this is the weirdest record. Like, what the heck is... It's just the weirdest sounds um, that and this guy with this super deep voice and, you know, <laughs> just didn't understand what was happening. And I can't say I loved it at the moment, but you know how that is. Like sometimes a great piece of art can like repel you and attract you at the same time. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened with, you know, uh, my first listen. I forget what part two of your question was. That's how I discovered the album. And then what was part two? What like drew you to it that you wanted to like explore the, the concept a little further? Well, I think, you know, as time went on, I started to become more and more of a fan of Leonard Cohen's songwriting. And then as I gained more and more production experience, I started to realize how he made the record and how he incorporated these, these toys and how like, how bold that is to me um, for, for someone like him to do because, you know, he like a, such a big audience and it's going to be like, you know, I think pr pretty rigorously critiqued, you know, for, for that type of like approach. Um, I found this great quote. Uh, that his producer said, he said, instead of presenting uh, me with the new songs exclusively on a Spanish guitar as usual, he had this dinky little Casio keyboard with him. Uh, the Casio was a great discovery for Leonard Cohen because these machines allow you to put one finger down and have a whole band come back at you. Wow, yeah, yeah. And this is how he came up with Dance With Me to the End of Love. Um, so I was like, damn, I want to see what that's all about, you know, so... I had experimented with that approach on a couple of soundtracks, like um, for theater, and I was like, I think I could do this. Um, so that eventually led to constructing the songs for this record. But not least, Police and Thieves by The Clash off of their self-titled record. Yeah. You know, been hearing this song and elevators and department stores for, you know, <laughs> a long time yeah, at this yeah. point. But you know how it is. Sometimes you'll hear a song forever and then you just hear it in a new way all of a sudden. And uh, this happened to me recently with this song. I just heard it in headphones, really nice set of headphones. Um, and probably a digital remaster or something like that. And I was just like, man, there's not like musically, it's pretty simple, but the arrangement is just amazing what they're doing here. And when I listen to the vocals too, just, I don't know, they're not really in tune. It's just all attitude. I don't know. I just, I felt like, uh, something really jumped out at me 
that was able to be like simple but have a ton of personality and a great arrangement all at the same time and it has an interesting live vibe to it even though it's fully a studio yeah totally. song. so i don't know yeah, I tried to pick songs that were kind of straight ahead because I think that this record, the songs feel more or less straight ahead to me. So things that might have influenced that kind of approach inside of me. Because I have these alternates too that are maybe not so much in the same vein. So I'm nice. being disciplined for you, Tom. I, I want to <laughs> value your, I want to value our audience's time here, you know? <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. We- So fun talking with John Bernson today. His new album, Higher Lows as Higher Lows, it's self-titled technically because that's the new name of the project, is out now. You can get it on limited edition clear vinyl via higherlows.bandcamp.com. John. Thanks so much. I'm excited for what you do next, and I'm excited for everyone to hear the record. Everyone, check it out. Thanks, Tom. It's been great talking to you, and um, I've really uh, had a good time being on your show. Hey, whenever I visit San Francisco for the first time, we'll hang out, too, because I've never been to San Francisco. Oh, man. We'll do something. I think you would really, really like it, actually. Um, I think I, think I would, like, too. I think you'd like Oakland a lot. I think you'd like San Francisco. And I think you'd like the... I don't know if you're a nature guy at all, but you can kind of do it all in the Bay. Oh, wow. Uh, with, with a pretty... Not too long of a drive, so... Sick. Hey, yeah. I'm, I'm ready to do it all, man. <laughs> Thank you again, John. This was fun. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. We're going to play one more track from John's new album, Higher Lows. You can get it at higherlows.bandcamp.com. This was a track we talked about a little earlier in the interview. It's called Fahrenheit 450. They took the stars and they took the stripes. Took the torch and they killed the lights. Every night they sold the parts. Piece by piece they auctioned off the statue built for liberty.
greed and they called it great. Turn the clock back to 88. Cut their deals, bribe the rats. New hotels and baseball hats. Lock the gates to the land of the free. Took our tax, took the oil and they hit the 